are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone up at the mills. It is great to be worshiping with you today, and uh, we are continuing with our sermon series called Blisters as we head through, uh, walk through the book of James this, this month and uh, into next month. Uh, blisters. How many of you have blisters? How many of you work with your hands? I was um, out with some friends uh, about a week or so ago, and uh, uh, one of them was commenting on my shoes. They said they really liked my shoes, and they kind of look new, although they're not. And uh, see my shoes? Yeah. Um, but but uh, then he looked at his son's shoes, you know, as a teenager, and he said, how come your shoes are so messed up? And he said, I work, Dad. Chalk one up. You know, if you could see my brain, it would be full of blisters. It's just... <laughs> there, are, there are different kinds of work. So we're talking about blisters. We're talking about a faith that works, a faith that matters. And uh, James, in writing this, this epistle, uh, you know, the brother of Jesus, uh, he is writing to these poverty-stricken oppressed followers of Jesus who fled Jerusalem in search of a safer place to live because of the persecution that came down on the early church after the movement of Christ followers sort of exploded there in Jerusalem. And so in this little letter of James, he is giving some very direct and practical advice about what does it look like to be a Christ follower wherever you might settle. And so I look at it as, okay, what is he telling me as a Christ follower 2,000 years later settled here in Pittsburgh, what should it look like to be a Christian today? If, if we were to describe a Christ follower according to James' definition of a Christian, using his template, the description that he would use, the following instructions would be what, what it would look like. This is what it would look like if you describe a Christian in James' day. He would say, though, though they are poor, they feel fortunate because they have this inheritance from God that money cannot buy. Eternal life, money cannot buy. And the ones that are wealthy, he said, they hold it lightly and they share generously. Talking about the Christians in his letter, if they applied what he said, they don't succumb easily to temptation because they are grateful for all that the good gifts that God has given them that they have. And they're not envious and lusting after the things that they shouldn't have or the things that other people have. They're content with that. If you were to look at his description, you would say that they take care of people that can't care for themselves, the elderly and and the children, the young and the old. They care for them. And they treat everybody alike. And in their communities, wherever they go, it wouldn't matter if you were a Jew or a Greek, if you were rich or poor, if you were a woman or a, a man, if you were a freed man, if you were a slave. It wouldn't matter because everybody, when they come together, is viewed equally. And they treat each other with regard and with respect. So I'm wondering... If you were to ask the average street person on the street today, describe a Christian to me, I wonder what they would describe. If you were to ask the average street person in America today, so, you know, hey, 
you have a new neighbor, he's a Christian, would that person cringe or would they be excited? Would they feel like that's an asset or would they feel like, oh, really, he's a Christian? I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. And I would like to think that the, the modifier, if you use Christian as an adjective, he's a Christian person, that worker that's coming in, the new hire, that's a Christian girl, that's a Christian guy. I wonder if that modifier, Christian, for the average person today is something that sounds like, oh, I can't wait, or oh, no. If you want to know what an authentic Christian is like, James gives us some excellent, clear direction. And, uh, and, and in fact, he's known you know, as the most practical. This letter is the most practical and direct book in the New Testament. So what I'm going to ask you to do is strap your seatbelts on today. I want to take a look at James at a section today in James chapter 2 that's going to come at us pretty hard in some of the areas where I think many of us need to grow. So if you have your Bible, turn to James chapter 2, and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read the first nine verses. This is what we're focusing on today. James chapter 2, if you're new to the Bible, it's at the end, toward the end of your Bible. I encourage you to always turn to it in your Bible, understanding the context and where that is, and get to know your Bible. James chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My dear brothers and sisters... How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, But you say to the poor one, you can sit over there or else sit on the floor. Well, that just does, well, discriminate, or doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters, he says. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. Let's pray. Lord. I pray for humility today. I pray that as we look at your word, that we will allow your Holy Spirit to speak to all of us in this place about the areas of our lives that need tweaking, that need help, that need growth and development. And so, God, I just pray for all of us today that you would speak to us in these matters. Amen. So what James is saying is simply this. Prejudice and discrimination has no place in a believer's heart. Prejudice and discrimination has no place in a believer's heart. My brothers and sisters, believers in our our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. What part of that do we not understand? How much clearer can he be? Also, Paul in Acts It talks about Paul when he came back after reaching out to the Gentiles. Because in those days, 
Jews hated the Greeks. Greeks hated the Jews. I mean, not a whole lot different than what we see happening in the Middle East today among the different ethnic groups and religious groups, right? I mean, come on. They're bombing each other this morning as we speak. So we, we find that back then Paul is saying there's a better way. There's a, and Paul reached out beyond his comfort zone, beyond his boundaries of his Jewish upbringing, his Jewish ethnicity, and he brought the gospel to people who were Greeks, who were non-Jew-speaking, uh, non-Arabic-speaking, as he probably was in those days, and Greek speakers and, and, uh, and Romans. So the Greco-Roman culture was really the dominant culture in that, in that era, as Jews were minorities. Um, so he's reaching out to them, and Paul comes back in Acts chapter 10, and he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So Paul, um, um, James writes, don't show favoritism. Paul says, God doesn't show favoritism. God doesn't discriminate. So the idea is crystal clear here, folks. It's crystal clear. There's no room for that among Christians. No room among us. But we all, there's this disturbing secret, though. We all, we all do it. I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. I'm, nah, you know, we all have our lists of people that we favor and the list of people that we don't favor. We have our lists. I mean, the, 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 we walk around with us. It's unpublished. It's in our minds. We don't tell anybody about it, but there are certain kinds of people we prefer to be with and certain kinds of people we prefer not to be with. We, we have this list of, of, of desirables and undesirables, and we play favorites, and we show partiality to people. Now, in the Roman culture, there was a very strict hierarchy of social status symbols. Uh, in fact, when we were over there in the Colosseum, they talked about how the Colosseum was open to anybody. The peasants could come and watch Christians and other people kill each other for entertainment. But, you know, if you were a peasant, you had to sit up in the cheap seats. Uh, and um, I talked several months ago about that hierarchy and how, you know, there was the Caesar and his family. Then there was the Senate. Then there was the equestrian class. Then there was the... Uh, uh, the, the Decurian class, and then there were Roman citizens, and then non-citizens that were free people, and then there were slaves. And you were on that totem pole somewhere, and everybody knew it by the clothes you wore, by, uh, by uh, so many different symbols. If you were of the Decurian class, or the equestrian class, or higher, you could wear a toga of Aurelis, and if you were the question class, that toga of realist, you could also wear gold rings, gold jewelry. And so he's basically saying if somebody of this equestrian class comes into your place and you give them preferential seating like they have in the Colosseum, you're sinning. Don't give them any preferential seating in God's family. When they come into your meeting place, they are just like everybody else. And if there's a poor person that comes into your meeting, you seat them right next to the equestrian. You seat them right next to the others. You put them in the same seats. Do you understand that? Does that make sense to you? Because there was in the kingdom of God, in God's family, God does not show favoritism. God's people thus need to be demonstrating that to the world around us. So James' example says some people prefer rich people. And I think if we're honest, there are those among us that we're kind of annoyed by poor people. You know, come on, get a job, 
Why should you take from us? Why should you do this? We're, we don't like being around poor people. You get on the bus to ride into work. You're not going to sit near them. You're going to find a better place. You feel a little superior to them. And so we try to insulate ourselves from them as much as possible. Right? Communities, people move in, other people move out. I live in one of those communities. And, and, and you find that people run for the safe territory because people that move in that are undesirable, they want to move out. We face this issue today. We face this issue today. Others prefer to be around educated people. And we look down our noses on those that haven't gotten very far in their academic pursuits. Or they'd rather be around white-collar people than blue-collar people. Or blue-collar rather than white-collar people. It goes both ways. Some prefer older people versus younger people. We don't like those kids these days. Those old people, they don't get it. You know, we, we find out that we all have preferences. We all face these issues. We'd rather be around conservative people, those liberals. Well, those conservatives, those wackos, we'd rather be around liberals. We go both ways in that area too. We find that we would rather be people that are, would be with people that are like us. That's common sense. That's human nature. I'm not saying that it is not human nature to be comfortable with people who are like you. But our Christian nature is do not treat anybody differently because they're different than you. Do not look down upon others because they are different than you. We get the skin color. Well, there's whites and then there's everybody else. You know, in our culture, you move anywhere else and it could be the other way around. And if you don't travel and see the world, you realize that, you know, the world isn't made up of white, middle-class, Anglo-Saxon Americans. I mean, come on. We need to realize that the world is a multicolored, multicultural place, and our country is a multicolored, multicultural place, and our churches ought to be multicolored, multicultural churches. Can anybody say amen? amen. Can anybody, are you with me here this morning? Because I know this is stepping on toes. It's stepping on toes. And that's what James was saying to these people. He says we all play favorites. We all discriminate. Instead of acknowledging these preferences, we, you know, as human, we, we need to say this stuff isn't right. James is saying this it needs to be exposed and it needs to be repented of. Paul and James would say this very... This is very close to the heart of God. Paul writes, with God there is no partiality of any kind. Can we say that together? With God there is no partiality of any kind. James says this is serious business. Tolerating favoritism, I mean, it just divides people. It divides people. It divides churches. It divides communities. It divides countries. It, it, it divides people. It, it, it hurts people. That's why we have fights in schools. That's why we have shootings in neighborhoods. That's why we have bombings and, 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 and threats. And it has to be rooted out of my... How is it ever going to change? I don't think anybody elected to office could change something like this. It has to come from the heart. It has to come from God changing the hearts of God's people and God changing people. And so the gospel has to be the way for peace to come to the world. Would you agree with that? The gospel is the way for peace to come to the world. And this is the good news, that God doesn't treat anybody differently. So therefore, you should not. You should not look down upon anybody. You should not. Why do we do this? 
Why is this so natural and so prevalent? Well, uh, you know, if you study this, you look at sociologists who will say, well, a lot of it comes from your upbringing. It comes from the home you're raised in. It comes from your parents. If children grow up in a home where mom and dad berate someone because of their skin color or their ethnicity or their gender or their social status or their belief system, it's a very strong possibility that that child is going to inherit those attitudes. Correct? Uh, And then when we get into our our young adult years where we tend to distance ourselves from our parents' attitudes, then we have to identify with our peer groups, right? So then that's why we get into gangs. That's why gangs are so strong because they need an identity. They need a family. They need a group. But, you know, whether it's a gang or not, we all have our cliques. We all have our people that we would rather be around. And that group of people has their preferences, their favorites. And so they will look down upon others that are not like them. In school, you see the cliques going on in every different system, every different level. And then we grow up, it becomes our nationality, becomes our voting block, it becomes this. And really, we live in a culture, a media-saturated culture, that is all about target marketing. And they target market people who will like the things that they want to sell them. So if they're going to sell them something, they will kind of group those people together and market them. And you always got to have somebody you hate that helps you feel more, more connected to the people you're like. And so our, our, our culture becomes more divided. It becomes more separated, more polarized than ever before. Though we have more information at our fingertips, we can pick the news service that provides the information that we want to hear that reinforces our, our beliefs, whether it's liberal or conservative or national or international, whatever that is. We find the way to reinforce our belief systems, and they will always include some form of favoritism and discrimination. I see a lot of heads nodding out there. Is, is, this, is this something that you agree, that you, can you see that that's true? How many of you would say, yeah, I see that's true? I won't ask you to raise your hand if it's you. But I would also say that I do the same thing. I want to listen to the things that tell me the things I like to hear. Right? Peer groups. I think pride and insecurity factors into this too. Everybody needs a scapegoat, right? We've got to blame our problems on somebody else. So one group of people is going to blame their problems on another group of people, and everybody has to have somebody that they look down upon to be able to help them feel better about themselves. Folks, we need God's help. We need supernatural help in order to really find help to fix this problem. This is so ingrained. This is so something that is so prevalent in every society, in every culture. We need God's help to root out partiality and discrimination in each of us. And when Jesus started his ministry, he seized every opportunity to expose and transform the heart of people that had these kinds of issues. Let me just hit on three Three such examples. The first one is a story that is told in Mark chapter 3. And uh, the story is Jesus is beginning his ministry. He is healing people. People are coming to hear what he has to say. He's gaining popularity. The power brokers in the day that look down on everybody else, the Pharisees, the uh, religious teachers, the people that sort of 
kept everybody in line and under control, didn't like Jesus because he was doing some things that didn't fit their template of what, uh, uh, you know, their group was all about. And so they were trying to trap Jesus. And, uh, and one of the ways to do that was try to get him to break the law, to break the Ten Commandments, the Torah. So, so they're looking for an opportunity to discredit him. And then on one Sabbath day, Jesus is teaching and they bring into this meeting where Jesus is teaching and there's a crowd around a man with a withered arm now you would think that somebody that's disabled somebody that's a problem uh, should be respected and cared for and treated well well they they kind of just thought let's use this man to see what Jesus will do so Jesus gets up and teaches and he sees this man sitting there right in front of him it's the Sabbath now according to the law the, the Ten Commandments there's a law that says thou shalt not do any work on the Sabbath and so then what the Pharisees and the scribes and the rabbinical teachers did was they had to, you know, define that law by adding on all sorts of limits and rules to what is work and what isn't work. And so healing somebody on the Sabbath, according to their law, was work. And so if Jesus was to do something like that on the Sabbath, they could trap him and accuse him of breaking the law, which is... <gasps> Healing somebody on the Sabbath, God forbid. And so Jesus sees what's going on there, and he sees this, this disregard for this poor man with a withered hand, and he gets angry. And he knows, he knows that if he heals this man, that, that, that persecution is coming down on him, that they're going to have an excuse now to arrest him and to plot to discredit him. So what does he do? He asks the man to come right up here. Stand right in front of everybody, and he heals the man on the Sabbath day. In spite of what it cost him, he did what he needed to do because he said, This man is more important than your laws. This man's regard and respect. Any, any good person would see that it's better to help somebody if you have the opportunity to help them than to obey some legalistic rule that you want to use to maintain control over people. So he didn't care about, they didn't care about this man. They didn't care about his withered arm. They didn't care about his life. They didn't care about his destiny. And Jesus said, not only do I forgive him, I, I, I heal him, I forgive him. And, and so this just made them irate. So what was Jesus doing? He was doing this to show them that, that, that treating people who are disabled, treating people that, that don't have all the parts the same way you have all the parts, that treating any of that kind of a, a person, any disabled person with disrespect is, 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 is a sin. People with any kind of deformity. I think, you know, you just look at Jesus' life. I won't read all the stories, but Jesus is touching the lepers. Jesus healing the blind beggars. Jesus taking a paralyzed man who was carried through the roof and healing him and forgiving him. Jesus going and, and casting out demons uh, to these, these people that were psychotic or whatever. And, and he's healing them. He's not afraid to get close to people that are hurting and disabled and diseased and Thank God for people who don't look down upon people who are weak, people that are deformed, people that are diseased. Thank God for those of you in this place at the mill sitting there 
who care for people. It doesn't matter if they have problems and issues. You might be a little uncomfortable, but you're not afraid to get close and treat them with high regard and respect. Disabled, deformed, diseased people should not be disrespected. They matter to God. They should matter to us. Another example of Jesus' treatment of women. Jesus' treatment of women. The story you hear it often is the story of Jesus when his disciples were traveling through Samaria. You know, I talked about the Greeks looking down upon the Jews. Well, who did the Jews have to look down upon? The Samaritans. These were half-breeds. They were Jews that during the captivity stayed there in the area. They intermarried with people of different ethnicity. So they, they kind of had a religion that was a bit of a mixed-up religion. It wasn't Orthodox Judaism. And so, so the Jews that came back and rebuilt the temple and reestablished their homeland saw these people as people that weren't pure Jews, so therefore they looked down upon them. These were the Samaritans. Jesus walking through Samaria, which most Jews would walk around Jerusalem. Galilee to the north, Judea to the south. Um, In the middle there was Samaria. So it sort of separated the two parts of Israel. And uh, they would walk around. But Jesus walked right through it. Middle of the day, comes to a well, meets a woman there who's by herself. You remember the conversation he had with this woman who had been married five times and had these crazy beliefs. But Jesus conversed with her. He broke down all the standards of men do not talk to women. Jews do not talk to Samaritans. And uh, when the disciples went into town to get some food, Jesus reached out to this woman, had a conversation with her, uh, treated her with respect, even though in the conversation he exposed her guilt. She saw that as this person, even though he knows me, respects me. Even though he knows my stuff, he treated me with regard and with respect. He didn't put me down. He didn't didn't, uh, dismiss me. He didn't treat me as most of the people in my own community treat me who are Samaritans. And he reached out to her. She mattered. She was a woman. She was a Samaritan. She mattered. People matter to God. Whether they believe what you believe or don't believe what you believe, they matter to God. They deserve human dignity and respect. And it is us, our responsibility to display that to people. I mean, you look at other stories about Jesus' treatment of women. Martha, remember Mary and Martha? And Mary was doing the women's work, and Martha was sitting at Jesus' feet like his disciples, and Martha got upset, and Jesus said, Don't be upset. I I don't see her differently than I see my disciples. She's doing what's the right thing to do. He treated her as he treated other women, other men that were followers of his. He didn't disrespect them because they were women. Uh, The woman caught in adultery. How many does it take to commit adultery? Right? So it's the woman that gets stoned. Where's the man? You hear even today in certain very, very conservative Uh, religious places uh, uh, where women are still being stoned for adultery. Where's the man? Where's the man? Because women aren't totally equal to men. They're not comparable to men. Men have the power. They have the might. They have the strength. They can rule. They can make the decisions. Jesus said, no, this woman, I don't condemn you. So 
Whoever, cast the, whoever has not committed sin cast the first stone. He turned the tables on the men and said, you too are sinners like her. How can you cast stones on her? The Syrophoenician woman, this woman that wasn't Jewish, uh, Jesus in the northern, came, came to the northern border of Israel up in Galilee, and a woman comes to him, my, my daughter, she's demon-possessed, what can you do? Jesus reached out beyond, he said, well, you know, the, we, we, long story there, the, the fact of the matter is Jesus reached out to her and healed her, her woman, a woman who wasn't Jewish, who uh, 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 had a demonic daughter, and he reached out to her and healed her daughter. James says, don't show favoritism. Paul says, with God, there's no partiality of any kind. Paul goes on to say, in Christ Jesus, there are, we, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I was reading an article this week in uh, one of the papers that talked about how even today in America, women's viewpoints in the workplace Though they might get equal pay for equal work, many of them don't. Their viewpoints in the workplace are not respected. Their viewpoint, if they have something to say, well, let's ask the men, what do they say? And if the men agree with them, then the decision gets made. On and on and on. It happens. Uh, Women are still paid less, generally, than men for the same work. They're kept out of leadership positions, even though they are just as gifted with leadership gifts. God says, God doesn't show partiality. Therefore, you should not show partiality. All are same, male, female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. James says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, I love this, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. There's royal law. James said it. Jesus said it. It's in the Gospels. It's in the Torah. Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself. And this reminds me of one final story where Jesus extended grace. And it was a time when one of these religious people came to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life was the question. You know, he's an expert in the law. He's a Jewish scholar. He says, well, what does your law say? Jesus turned the question back to him. What does the Torah say? And he says, well, here's the Shema. Every Jewish person can say it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. And the second law is like it. And this is the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, You did well. You did well. Good answer. Go ahead and do it. But being an expert in the law, he's going to dissect that law as much as he can. Lawyers are great at that. Sorry, any lawyers in the house here. So he says, well, who then is my neighbor? That's the question. And so Jesus told the story and sounded sort of like a joke, you know, uh, uh, a, a, a scribe, a Levite, and a Samaritan were walking down the road one day. Walked into a bar. and uh, So the, the, there's a man that was waylaid. Uh, he was robbed. He was arrested. He was left on, uh, for dead on the side of the road. Uh, uh, a Jewish a rabbi comes down. That's what it was. Um, and, and passes the guy and doesn't help him. And then a um, Pharisee comes by and uh, he, he doesn't help the man. Um, and so... Um, yeah, so a man is robbed, left, and so the Jewish leaders, the priest goes by, he doesn't, a Levite goes by, that's what it is, a priest goes by, a Levite goes by, and they don't help the man. But then a Samaritan, and I already told the story about Samaritans, he comes by. 
He helps the man. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his horse. He takes him into Jericho. He gives money to the person there that's taking care of him and says, help him to get better. And so Jesus said, who was a neighbor to this man? And the expert of the law said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, then go and do likewise. Go and believe likewise. Go and think that's a good idea likewise. Go and do. That one two-letter word, do, is what we're talking about this month. Doing the gospel. Do it. Do it. Jesus shattered the religious prejudices, the idea that belief without action is okay. He shattered that. So, what we're about as a church is revering God, putting God first, believing God. We're about connecting with one another in a community of faith, a community of believers, hopefully a growing, diverse community of believers. And we're all about contributing, doing, contributing to the needs of others. So, serve the Berg. It's just one day. It's not the only time that we believe we are serving our community It is just one day for us as a corporate community to go out and do what we should be doing all the time, reaching out beyond our walls, which we do do a lot behind the scenes. But this one day we're saying we're going to go out and we're going to go to our communities. We're going to say, how can we serve you? What can we do to help you? We're here. We want the name Christian to have a good connotation. We want the term Christian as a modifier to be something where somebody would say, oh, great, I'm glad that person is my neighbor. Oh, great, I'm glad we got a Christian that's coming into the team and helping to work in the workplace. I'm glad. That's what I hope we can do in just a small way to help people realize that being a Christian is going to help make the world a better place and bring peace where there's division. Kids reaching out to Haiti, seeing, going into a different culture, seeing and feeling and experiencing and respecting and regarding these people who they will meet and get to know and say, oh, they're just like me. If I were born here, I would be just in, I would be in there, I would be in their condition. If I was born where they're born, I would be in the same spot that they're in. Letting our students go out and have a taste of what the real world is like will change them and help them to break the cycle of favoritism and discrimination and racism. Three verses. I'm going to invite you all to read them with me up at the mills here in Oakmont. These are the three key verses that are found in James chapter 2. And um, let's just read them together as we put them up on the screen. Will you do that? Put them up, Jeremy. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Would you bow your heads with me, please?
There's a verse in the scripture that says that God's word is like a, like a knife that cuts right down the middle of us. And I, I feel today, God, that, that you're trying to, to surgically cut out some of the stuff inside of us that's like a cancer that just eats away at our hearts and lives and our culture and our society. And so, God, it's a healthy thing to cut out those things that that can destroy. And so I pray, God, that today in me and in all of us, where we allow this stuff to creep in, that you would just cut it out, that you would just zap it, take it away from us. Help us, God. Forgive us. Forgive us for our pride and our insecurities. Forgive us for looking down at others, whether they be someone above us or somebody beneath us, however we view that. Help us to realize that in God's family, there is no partiality. You show no partiality. You don't play favorites. Help us, help us to not play favorites, I pray. God, help us, I ask, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we repent. We want to be Jesus in our time, in our age, in our era. We want to be Jesus. That people would say, that person's a Christian? Oh, great, because I think Christians are people that have it right, that get it right. Not that they are right or better than. They get it right because they love others. They follow a person who sacrificed himself for others. That's the kind of person I'd love to be friends with. Help me, Jesus, to be that kind of person, I pray. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Do your work. Holy Spirit, right now, I just pray that you'll do your work in this place. As we, as we sit here in this place, I just ask, Spirit of God, speak to hearts right now. Right now. Right now. Where there are those that's, that need to repent, I pray that they will humble themselves and say, Jesus, that's me. I'm sorry. I realize that you would not do that if you were in my shoes. Forgive me for that. Help me, Jesus, to do right and to be right. Help me, Jesus, to reach out to others that are like me and those that are unlike me and to have care and compassion and respect for all. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.